I never thought that I would uh, sit while preaching a sermon. I'm generally opposed to the idea, but I'm dealing with a, a herniated disc in my lower back, and so for the time being, I'm going to need to sit. By the way, if any of you are uh, chiropractors out there or doctors, I'd love to talk to you immediately following the service. We have, uh, if you were in my house, you'd see that we have this long hallway that goes the entire length of our house, just from one end to the other, and it's hardwood floor, that entire hallway. And so one of the only comfortable positions I've been able to find these last couple weeks is in an, an office chair. And so I sit in an office chair uh, that sort of reclines, and uh, when I need to go somewhere, I just you snap my fingers. And the kids have been enjoying this and have been teasing me. And so then they come up and, and they grab my chair and they push me from one end of the house to the other. It's very, it's fun slash embarrassing. Verse 31 of our text says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Most Christians are really familiar with that call. That call to glorify God. That call to do all things to the glory of God. But many Christians, in, in my experience, don't really know what it means. They were supposed to glorify God, but many don't know what it means to glorify God. How do I do that? Brian Smith is an author, and he writes this account. The defensive end had just sacked the quarterback to effectively end the game and send his team to the NFC Championship. The reporter found him at midfield and said, congratulations on a great game. Can you take us through that last play? And the athlete responded, thank you first off. I want to give all glory to God. All glory to God. If you watch sports, that's a fairly common thing to hear a Christian athlete say when interviewed at the end of a game. The reporter responded, there was not much talk about you personally leading up to this game. It seems like maybe they forgot about you. How much did that motivate you out here today? The athlete responded, all week long, Everybody was talking about how they were going to walk all over us. Nobody even knew who I was. I kept telling myself all week that they will remember me after the game. Everyone will know my name. That is not what it means to glorify God. In the same breath to say, all glory to God and everyone will remember my name. So we need to learn this. Those are, those are opposite goals. If we listen carefully to the text that we have here, if we listen carefully to these words Paul has written, he brings some practical clarity to what it means to live for the glory of God. In our verses today, Paul is, is closing this portion of his letter dealing with meat offered to idols, to eat or not to eat. That was the Corinthian Christian's question, and Paul did not give a simple answer. 
There were two sides in this debate. Some said the meat was used to honor an idol, so it is off limits. Christians cannot eat that meat. But then others said, sure, the meat was offered to an idol, but idols are not real. So we are free to eat the meat. And so they turn to Paul and say, well, who's right? The eaters, the non-eaters. And in classic Pauline fashion, Paul has basically said, you're both wrong. He refuses to take sides on this one. Instead, he has been teaching truths that should guide the Corinthians regarding not only meat offered to idols, but a thousand other issues that could threaten unity in the church, which is what we need. Don't you often want just a yes or no answer? Don't you often want it to just be black or white? And sometimes it is. When the gospel is at stake, it most definitely is. But oftentimes it isn't. And it's not clear, do this or do that. It's here's what God's word says. Know God, know his word, and be wise. So instead, Paul said at the very first verse of this section, this section, by the way, began all the way back in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 1, Paul said, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This was not an issue to be resolved solely with knowledge, but with love. So on one side, those who felt free to eat should have their liberty constrained by love for others. And on the other hand, those who did not feel free to eat should have their judgments, as they were tempted to look down on others, they should have their judgments constrained by love. And so we're going to see this morning, Lord willing, Paul ends this section the way he began, calling the Corinthians to seek not their own good, but the good of others. So with that direction in mind, will you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please send your Holy Spirit now to work in a special way to open and transform our hearts with the very truth that he has inspired in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 900. We've been on page 900 for months, it seems like. So what we're reading today, this is Paul's conclusion of this section and in these first two verses 23 and 24 it's, it's like his introduction to this conclusion he's going to hook his listeners here he grabs the attention of the uh, of both sides of the eaters and the non-eaters verse 23 all things are lawful to which the eaters said amen but not all things are Helpful, to which the non-eaters said, Amen. All things are lawful, to which the eaters again said, Amen. But not all things build up, to which the non-eaters again said, Amen. Who's right? The eaters or the non-eaters 
Neither one of them is right. Paul says to them both, verse 24, let no one, like neither one of you, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I don't want to call these two groups eaters and non-eaters the rest of the sermon, so let me give you two different names. Let's call them legalists and libertines. Let's call the eaters libertines, and let's call the non-eaters legalists. So libertinism and legalism are two prideful sins that all Christians are prone to. So let me work this out a bit. But it's something that we are all prone to. The, the Christian life is like riding a horse. And you can fall off on the right side or you can fall off on the left side. And you fall off on the left side and then you get up and you overcorrect. And you end up falling off on the right side and vice versa. So on the one side is legalism. Where a Christian makes rules where there should not be rules. Rules like Christians can't eat meat offered to idols. Well, on the other side is libertinism or licentiousness or antinomianism, which is no rules where there should be rules. Like, eat the meat no matter what the circumstance. Now, I am severely simplifying legalism and libertinism, but hopefully you get the idea. We don't experience this today over meat offered to idols, but we have our own opportunities. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Christians may never drink alcohol. That smacks of legalism. On the other side of the horse, Christians may drink alcohol whenever and wherever they want. That smacks of libertinism. Both wrong. Christians can't watch football on Sunday. That smacks of legalism. And I'll tell you, if you're visiting, there are not many that hold to that in this church. <laughs> On the other side of the horse, Christians are free to disregard the Sabbath. Well, that smacks of libertinism. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And Paul counters both with a guiding principle. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is how a Christian keeps from falling off one side or the other. This is how a Christian finds balance when dealing with various and particular issues in the Christian life, by seeking not his own good, but by seeking the good of his neighbor. So those two verses, that's Paul's introduction to this conclusion. Before asking, can I eat this? They should be asking, will this be good for him? Will this be good for her? And he has been implying that for those of you who have been with us, since chapter 8, verse 1. The Corinthians should have full heads and full hearts. They should be constrained by love. 
He's just putting that another way here. They should seek not their own good, but the good of others. Now, that principle applied is what we have in the next few verses. In the next few verses, we have the application of that principle. Paul gives some practical examples, and he hits both sides, speaking to the legalist and the libertine. Sometimes, this guiding principle will guide the legalist, the non-eaters, to eat. And sometimes, this principle will guide the libertine, the eaters, to abstain from eating meat. So Christian, in the same way, this principle will guide you into doing what sometimes you don't want to do. This principle will guide you into doing what does not come naturally. What may not come instinctively. But it will be for the good of others and thus and more importantly for the glory of God. So first in verses 25 through 27 Paul addresses the legalists those with Rules where there shouldn't be rules. Those who are unwilling to eat the meat that had been offered to idols. And he gives them two scenarios where they should eat the meat. These are hard words for them. But in this case, if they're going to think not about themselves but others, they should actually eat the meat. There's two scenarios. Here's the first one. In verse 25 and verse 26. Eat. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Okay, this is the first of five times this word conscience is used in a short span of verses. I know most of you probably know what your conscience is. Maybe some of you don't. Let me repeat a definition written by John Gill. The conscience is a power or faculty of the rational soul of man by which it knows its own actions and judges of them according to the light it has. So your conscience is this God-given mechanism that works within you by which you know and judge your actions. It tells you this is right, or it tells you this is wrong. So what pain is to your body, your conscience is to your soul. And your conscience operates, John Gill says rightly, according to the light it has. Another word for light is knowledge or truth. The more you know, the more truth you know, which comes from the revealed word of God, the more truth that you know, the more accurate your judgments of what is right and wrong will be. Or the stronger, is the term Paul uses, the stronger your conscience will be. So Paul gives light. He gives truth in verse 26. Verse 26 is truth that should clear the legalist conscience to eat whatever is sold in the market without Raising questions for 
And he's quoting Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's saying the meat belongs to God. The meat belongs to God. The meat does not belong to an idol. God made the cow. And God made the cow. We praise God for this, for your good. So eat it and enjoy it. Have a clear conscience. There's no need to raise questions. Well, we know the Jewish rabbis had lots of rules for Jews who would be living in pagan cities like Corinth. And we know that one of the restrictions that would be placed on them was to only buy and eat meat from shops that were kosher. So they would go to the market and they would, necessarily, they would ask questions about the meat's history. So here is what Paul is saying. For the Corinthian Christian, the, the meat market should be approached indifferently. It should not be made a matter of conscience. Just go there, Paul is saying, and buy the meat and don't ask questions about where the meat came from because it, it doesn't matter where the meat came from. William Barclay says this means don't ask fussy questions. So let me give you a somewhat crass summary of this verse, which normally I wouldn't do, but I think it will distill the meaning. Paul writes, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. That means don't be a pain in the butt. That's what he means. Just don't be a fussy Christian. You don't need to ask all these questions. Don't be difficult. For them, don't ring the bell at the butcher counter and ask a bunch of obscure questions about the history of the meat that he's selling. At the root of those kinds of fussy questions is seeking your own good, promoting your own pursuit of morality. It is not considering the good of others. It's flaunting yourself. It's totally unnecessary. It's seeking your own good. It's not seeking the good of others. It's tough to find a modern illustration of this. But we have personal convictions. You have personal convictions. And you may have personal convictions regarding how you educate your children. And you shouldn't flaunt that conviction that you have. You may have convictions about what kind of clothes you should wear or should not wear. And you shouldn't flaunt those convictions. You may have convictions about how a Christian should date or not date. And that's fine. And you should not flaunt those convictions that you have. You may have a parenting style. And you should not flaunt that parenting style that you have. My wife and I remember years ago when we were at a church, it was another church. It was not this one. No one would ever do this in this church. <laughs> and there was this popular thing that was sweeping through this church. And it was this book and it was this curriculum and it was called Growing Kids God's Way. And so people would ask us this, what I would consider a fussy question, and we almost felt condemned when we were asked the question. They would say, are you a growing kid's family? 
And that was Christianese. That was code for something. And the implication, I mean, what's the title? Are, are you growing kids God's way? How do you answer that question? What's the alternative? I don't want to say, I don't want to say no to that. But if you mean, like, do we subscribe to this specific method of parenting? You know, the answer at the time was no. But we were, we were made to feel like we were missing out on something and, and, and even felt judged by it at times and, and felt like this person looking back, it was sort of flaunting this thing that they did. It's unimportant. It's unimportant. So Paul's saying, be careful here. In regards to his meat offered to idols, he's challenging them. He's saying, don't go to the meat market. Like, don't be that Christian. Don't be that Christian who is just impossible to relate to because you're so weird. And you're asking all these weird and obscure questions where it has nothing to do with the gospel. It doesn't even have anything to do with anything clear in Scripture. It just is a part of Christian culture as far as you're concerned. He's challenging them. I think that's what Paul is doing. Here's the second scenario, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, so pause. That means that Paul expects that believers are eating dinner with unbelievers. That's a big deal then. It's a good thing for us to hear. They have relationships with unbelievers. And they're in an intimate setting together, even more intimate then than it is today. And that is sharing a meal together around a table. And of course, they may serve something. This unbeliever may serve something that you don't like or are offended by in some way. And Paul says, if you're in an unbeliever's house, they invite you to dinner and you are disposed to go, so you go, eat. Eat whatever is set before you, again, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Again, no fussy questions. Don't be rude. The meat's history is of no concern. Your conscience should be clear here. So remember the principle he's saying of verse 24. Like, why are you asking that question? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbors. He's saying, listen, your conscience should not be on alert when you're buying meat at the market. And your conscience should not be on alert when you're dining at an unbeliever's house. Be prepared to buy what's on sale and to eat whatever is put on your plate. Out of love for the one selling the meat, out of one for the one at whose home you're eating dinner, both, one for sure, both probably not even believers. So Christian, don't seek your own good, but the good of others. Consider others. Consider the effects of your comments. Even consider the effect of your questions. Paul will have more to say about that. That's the legalists, the non-eaters. Now Paul turns to the libertines. He's letting them all have it. These are those without rules where there should be rules. Those who are unwilling to even consider others before eating. And he gives them a scenario where they should not eat the meat. 
verse 28 through 29a. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Well, why not, Paul? Why not? You, didn't you just make it clear that, that we should have a clear conscience about this? Well, he goes on. For, this is why not, for the sake of the one who informed you, good of others, not yourself, for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Again, this is others-focused. Christians are to be self-effacing. This is constraining liberty out of love for one another. So picture this. Someone, probably an unbeliever, based on the context and what he just said before, they, they see you at this meal and you're about to eat meat and, and they whisper in your ear, that meat has been offered to idols. This is a scenario that Paul is imagining. Now, now think about this. Why are they telling you that? Why are they giving you that information? If they don't think it matters, like Paul just said, it doesn't matter. But if they think that it doesn't matter, then they wouldn't be giving you this information. So obviously, it's, it's significant to them. It's not significant to you. You feel free to eat whatever's put before you. But to them, they're bringing it up. So there's something significant to them. It's likely, in that culture, it's likely this person sees the eating of meat as an endorsement of idol worship. It's likely that that's, that's what they're putting together if you go and eat this meat. That's not what it means to you. Because you know that you have freedom and liberty on this issue, so it's not what it means to you, but because that is what it means to them, and you know it, right? You're not asking questions, but you know they brought it up, so you know where they stand, you don't eat it. You don't eat it. Now, maybe you talk to them, I'm sure you do. Maybe you have a conversation with them, and maybe the next time you're with them, you do eat the meat. But this is a very practical way to consider the good of others here. Paul says, in this case, don't. Don't eat the meat. Now, one more time, Paul turns back to the non-eaters, the legalists, and he says this in the second half of verse 29 and verse 30. For why should my liberty, and, and he means here the liberty that he talked about in verse 25 and 26, the freedom that Paul has to eat meat. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And the someone else is the legalist who's looking down on him and judging him. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Again. Paul says, there is nothing inherently sinful about the meat. And so he is challenging them not to judge him. So those are Paul's practical examples. Very practical for them. And he's made his point. Those who felt free to eat should have their liberty constrained by love. And those who did not feel free to eat should have their 
judgments constrained by love. Neither one of them should be seeking their own good, but the good of others. So now in closing, Paul comes full circle and he concludes this three-chapter lengthy section with the guiding principle. There's guiding principles and then there's the guiding principle, an overarching principle for the Christian. The verse that I quoted at the beginning of this sermon, one of the most well-known verses on Christian living in the Bible. The principle, verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You heard that. Yes, that's what Christians are supposed to do. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We live to honor God. We live to glorify God. But are we like the football player who redirects praise to God and then redirects it again to himself? Do we understand what this, do we know what God's glory is? Do we know what it means to glorify God? I proposed in the introduction of this sermon that God's glory and glorifying God is commonly misunderstood. So let's answer this question. As a reminder for many of you, what is God's glory? Just think for a minute. What is God's glory? God's glory is God's greatness on display. God is holy, totally set apart. Nothing, no one like him in the universe. God is great. And when God's greatness, when God's perfections are seen, that's glory, the radiance of God. It is his perfections pictured. It is God's infinite worth going public. So that's God's glory. What does it mean then to glorify God? It doesn't mean you give God more of that. What does it mean to do all things to the glory of God? And, and Paul gives insight in this text. He gives insight into what it means and how we glorify God. But let me step back and just speak very generally. Living to the glory of God is living in such a way that pleases God and draws attention to His glory. That's what it means to glorify God. To glorify God means living in such a way. Living. Thinking, speaking, behaving, playing sports, parenting, working, sleeping, vacationing, relating. What it, living. Doing all that in such a way that pleases God and draws attention to Him, not to you. That draws attention to how good he is, not how good you are. To how great he is, not how great you are. 
we start talking about God's glory, and some of you are just waiting for a John Piper quote, so here you go. <laughs> and it's only a matter of time. God's ultimate goal is to preserve and display his infinite and awesome greatness and worth. That is his glory. God has many other goals in what he does, but none of them is more ultimate than this. They are all subordinate. God's overwhelming passion is to exalt the value of his glory. To that end, he seeks to display it, to oppose those who belittle it, and to vindicate it from all contempt. It is clearly the uppermost reality in his affections. He loves his glory infinitely. So verse 31, Christian, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now look at that verse 31. He begins with the word so, which means that this verse is a conclusion of the verses before. And what he said before is, seek not your own good, but the good of others. So for those of you who want to know a very practical way you can live for the glory of God, this is it. One way of living to the glory of God, one way of living in such a way that pleases Him and draws attention to His glory is to seek the good of others. To seek the good of others is to live to the glory of God. It is to live in a way that pleases Him. It is to live in a way that pleases God. It is to live in a way that draws attention to God and not you. Let your light shine before men, Matthew 5, 16, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The assumption is that you're redirecting every ounce of praise that might come your way. And the reason that you serve and the reason that you love and the reason that you're different, they should know that it's because of God. And nothing good in you. Seek the good of others, Paul is saying. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, when you're buying meat, he's telling them, when you're eating at someone's house, when you're under the watchful eye of unbelievers or legalistic believers, when you work, when you parent, when you talk to your friend, when you text, when you go to school, when you sit in class, when you watch TV, when you do all things, do all to the glory of God, which includes seeking not your own good, but the good of others. And then here's how Paul has been doing that his entire Christian life, whose example we will be called to follow, these last verses, 32 of chapter 10 through 11, verse one, this is Paul's example. This is how he's been applying this. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, right? With your fussy questions, with your disregard of other Christians who may have different convictions than you, give no offense. Just as I, Paul says, try to please everyone in everything I do. 
not seeking my own advantage, there it is again, not my good, but the good of others, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then he says, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. I'm just doing what Jesus did. And as you see me practically working that out, follow that example that you have in me. So Paul's a people pleaser. And he said it right there. This is what it looks like to live for the good of others. He said, I try to please everyone in everything. Now remember the context. Meat offered to idols. That is not an issue where the gospel is at stake. There can be differing opinions there, and it doesn't compromise the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, Paul would not be a people pleaser in that case. There's example after example of him confronting and pointing fingers and parting ways. When the gospel is at stake, there's no room for disagreement. But here, across these disagreements, there needs to be love. Full hearts for the unity and building up of the church, seeking not their own good, but the good of others. In that case, he's a people pleaser. We have issues like this. It may not be meat offered to idols, but we have issues all the time, don't we, where the gospel is not at stake, but we disagree. That's a good thing. Then we must also seek to please everything, everyone, excuse me, in everything we do. Not seeking to get ourselves ahead, but them ahead. Namely, ahead to Jesus Christ. What does Paul say? That they may be saved. That's more important than squabbling over this, he's saying. That's more important than them knowing how moral you are. It's more important that they come to know Jesus. It's more important that they hear truth from your lips and experience love from your hands. That they see you're not seeking your own good or your own advantage or elevating yourself or propping yourself up or your own reputation, but genuine love and concern for them that they may be saved. Unbelievers who are here today, if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, maybe Christians have been an obstacle to you. It happens. Maybe Christians have, have acted in this way that you're hearing described. And maybe that's been an obstacle to you pursuing Jesus, maybe that's been an obstacle to you even being in church. Maybe it's a miracle that you're here today. Maybe the examples that have been set before you by Christians has not been a good example. I know I haven't always been a good example. I wonder sometimes if I'm a bad example more than I'm a good example. I struggle with this. And so maybe Christians have been an obstacle to you. And maybe what they've communicated is 
morality, or maybe what they've communicated is some sort of self-help, or maybe they've communicated unintentionally that Jesus is just sort of this add-on that makes everything better. And so I want you to know that if that's the message that you've gotten from Christians, this is not the right message, and it's not the message that we mean to communicate. The message we mean to communicate is the gospel. The gospel. The truth that, that we are sinners. That we know ourselves better than we could possibly know you. And most of us couldn't imagine how you could be any worse than we are. Every Christian feels like Paul. Like we're the chief of sinners, I think. The more you know, the more you deal with your sin. So the truth is that, that we are sinners. And we run from God. We disobey God. Or we're indifferent to God. And we dishonor God. And that is unacceptable. That is unacceptable. God created me. He created you. He created me. He created you to live for His glory. To live for Him and not yourself. He created you to worship Him. He created you to love Him. He created you to live not for yourself, but to live for Him. And incidentally, you won't be truly joyful until you do. But He's made you and I live that way. And we haven't since, since as long as we can remember. We have not lived that way. And the punishment and the consequence for that, very rightly, is that when we die, we would be alienated from God forever. Not that we would just live our own way and disregard God and disobey God and then be given some kind of free pass or wink at all that sin and brought into heaven forever. As if life was just this opportunity to rebel and disobey and do our own thing before worshiping God eternally. And that's bad news. The good news is that Jesus came. God sent his son Jesus to live in a way that I cannot live and you cannot live. That is perfect. He came and lived perfectly in the place of sinners like you and me. And then he died. And he died obviously not for his own sin. But he died for the sin of others. He died. He rose from the dead so that sinners like you and me. So that we could have a relationship with God. So that we could be reconciled to God. So that we could be forgiven. Washed clean. Made a new creation. To live imperfectly. But to live for his glory. And no longer our own. Until the day when we will see him face to face. And be made perfect. To live with him forever. And the promise of that gospel is that if you believe that gospel and turn from living your own way and trust Jesus in this life for your salvation and for everything else, that you will be saved. And you will be brought from this life to the next to live in peace and at peace with God for all eternity. For those of you here who are Christians, in your life, are you living for God's glory or your own glory? Is it about your name or God's name? Are you living today to please God? Really, to please God? Or are you living to please others?
Are you living to please your pastors or your spouse or your parents? Teenagers, are you living to please your friends? Or are you living to please God? It will look radically different. Are you drawing attention to God? Or are you drawing attention to yourself? The way you live, the way you talk, the way you Facebook, the way you're a church member, the way you talk to your husband, you talk to your wife, the way you talk to your kids, the way you behave at work, what you do with your friends when you go out. Are you drawing attention to yourself? Or are you drawing attention to God? In your life, are you seeking the good of others? Or are you seeking the good of yourself? You see, these are the kinds of questions that Paul wants us to wrestle with. That he wants us to consider. Consider.